maybe I'll start by introducing myself. So my name is Roya Ijedi Maksudi. I'm a child psychiatrist and an adult psychiatrist. Um, and I've worked in the county in the past. I worked at Hathaway Sycamores for a couple of years. Um, I've worked um, in Tay FSP in the past as well. Um, and most recently, I've been working at the VA, even though I'm a child psychiatrist, um, working with our homeless patient-aligned care team, so kind of a, um, a home for veterans who are homeless and, and um, trying to work with them and their families. And I do research in family homelessness. So I've been working on developing like a family um, resilience program. So a lot of the work has been around trauma, trauma-informed care, and so that's kind of what I've been thinking about. Basically, we're going to talk about trauma, what it is, how it affects us, and then principles of trauma-informed care, um, and then do some exercises together. So I think I wanted to start with some of the positives. So we're, we're working in LA County. Um, I've been here 10 years now, I think, at this point. But we're 4,000 square miles. There's 10.1 million people. Um, it's always cool when I, when I think back about this. 49% Latino, 27% white, 15% Asian. Um, Pacific Islander, 9% African-American, 1.5% um, American Indian, and over 100 different languages spoken. So I think like taking a step back and thinking about our city and our county, there's so many cool things that you're, that you're all doing. And, um, but there's also 19% living in poverty. Um, and some, you know, we see disparities in care. Um, and I think that kind of leads us to concern about trauma and thinking about traumatized populations as well. Um, and so I don't think we need to do a lot of time talking about what trauma is, because I think most of you know and are, are working with it. Um, but some things we think about is stress, too. So stress really being part of trauma. And I think when you're working with clients, you're, a lot of times you're probably talking about stress, too, with people and conceptualizing it that way. Um, and so, I mean, basically, it's a state of mental or emotional strain or tension um, resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. So I think. Our clients are dealing with stress. We're dealing with, with stress. We're in sy systems that are stressed. So kind of thinking about, about that, too. Um, and, and I think that's important to, to differentiate from trauma as well. And then the different types of stress. So there's the positive stress. This is kind of like the normal part of being a human. So this is the stress I'm feeling, like being up here talking. Or <laughs> um, so you know, heart rate increases, mild elevation in hormone levels. Like going on a first date, we have this kind of stress, but then it, it goes back to homeostasis. So we have these little blips, and then, and then we can move on. And then we see tolerable stress. And so this is something like being in a car accident, or that's um, like a minor kind of fender bender, or dealing with a sick loved one. Um, my really good friend, she's a family member in the hospital. She's dealing with, with this right now. Um, but it, and it's serious, but it's temporary, and we know that having like social connections, having supportive people around can really buffer these effects, and so it can, it's still a strain on our system, but we can kind of go back um, to our normal functioning. And then toxic stress. So I think we're hearing a lot about toxic stress in California, because we, we have a new Surgeon General, and um, there's a lot of talk about stress, and, um, and so really this is putting our body in this like constant state of hyperarousal, um, and this is, you know, the activation can, can occur over a long period of time. It's really this prolonged activation of stress. And we see this, I think, in our clients who are dealing with, like, chronic abuse or living, you know, um, in situations where there's a lot of community violence or constantly daily st stressors. And so that's, that's the, the toxic kind of stress that we really worry about that can affect us, affect our clients. 
um, and something we, we have to think about in a trauma-informed system and that you guys know very well. Um, and then trauma. Have you, have you guys heard this definition of trauma? Or it's from SAMHSA. Yeah. Um, and so I always like to like remind myself what it is. So individual trauma results from an event, a series of events, or a set of circumstances that, that's experienced by someone um, as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, but, th but then has um, long-lasting effects on functioning, mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. So thinking about how trauma affects people on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, um, physical level, all these different manifestations of trauma that can occur. Um, and similarly, we see these different types of trauma. Uh, this is a very oversimplified <laughs> diagram, but you know, we see acute trauma, and this is what, you know, if someone's in a car accident or there's a dog bite, we, you know, um, we see the chronic trauma, which you might see a lot too, like ongoing abuse, um, the complex. So I work at the VA, so I see I take care of veterans where they've had military sexual trauma or childhood trauma, and we see more of a complex trauma picture emerge. Um, and then something I think a, a lot of times people are, nowadays we're talking a lot more about historical trauma um, and intergenerational trauma. And th this, is, this could be a whole other lecture, but kind of um, the trauma that, that occurs across lifespans, across like um, generations. So indigenous peoples, um, thinking about with slavery, the Holocaust, um, and I think, I'm really glad we're all talking about this a lot more too, because I think this is something that we, that we have, to, have to think about. Um, and then what we know is that pain and suffering is really, it's part of being human. So it's, it's I think it's impossible to be a human and not have um, pain and suffering. And so it's something we, we experience. And then two people can experience the same event and, and have a completely different reaction from it. And um, one person may be impacted by it, another person may not. And so I think we know that working with patients too, but it's something to keep in mind. Um, and something we can kind of think about as we, as we go through the talk. And have you guys heard about ACEs? I don't want to be beat ACEs to the ground if most people have heard of it. Okay, okay. Um, so I mean, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go quickly. So ACEs was this big study they did in the 90s um, with the CDC and Kaiser, and they basically asked people about these 10 types of trauma. Um, are you screening for ACEs with, with your clients? Yes. So, some are, okay. Yeah, um, and it's really simple, asking about abuse, neglect, um, um, and then challenges, household challenges, um, having a parent who is incarcerated, having substance abuse in the household, um, mother treated violently, and then divorce. And you can actually take an ACEs quiz. If you, I think if you Google ACEs quiz, I think NPR has it. It's kind of sobering to take at times, but you can actually count your ACEs as well. Um, but the reason it's been you know, talked about and we think about it is because it really has shown this connection with health. And, um, and we've found that, or they've done research and they found that at least 67% um, of the population had one ACE and 12.6% had four or more, um, which is, pretty, is a lot of average childhood events. Um, and then as your number of events increase, the health risks go up. Um, I think you all know that it's just working with people, but I think having being able to show this research to politicians, to policymakers, can really um, show how important trauma is and trying to build these trauma-informed systems can be. So anxiety increases, drug and alcohol abuse, um, they looked at school outcomes, um, smoking, education, I feel like I'll just keep clicking the rest of the, the day, interpersonal violence, um, teen pregnancy, depression, liver disease, suicide attempts, so many heart attacks. I mean, we just, 
all these health conditions tied to, to adverse childhood events. Um, okay, and then some of the limitations is that the sample, the people that they looked at for this were mostly kind of upper white class individuals. So this is kind of the criticism of, of this study. It ignored the social systems, the environmental systems, didn't consider in the impact of intergenerational trauma, race, oppression. Um, and so the communities we're working with have higher ACEs, I think, than what's um, talked about in the study and different ways of dealing with it and different um, access to care and all these other different pieces of information. Um, but they, they have looked at LA County. And so this is um, one study that showed um, like almost half the population had one to three ACEs in, in LA County of average childhood events. Um, and then 13.5% had four or more. So pretty high, I think. So we're dealing with a lot. But there's always hope, and that's, that's something we know. I think, and you know this, because you're, you're working in hard situations and um, taking care of people. So there's hope, there's recovery, um, and support is what helps people move forward. Yeah, so you guys are dealing with a lot. And so um, a lot of trauma, a lot of difficult situations. Um, so we see, the, you know, like, I don't think we even talked about any, these one-time events. So you're, you're kind of past the one-time events with, the, with your, your clients, yeah. We see that you're seeing more of this ongoing, relentless stress. Yeah. Um, so poverty, um, chronic illness, homelessness, domestic violence. Um, and then the, the systemic institutional factor, so um, transitioning out of um, kind of incarceration and not having supports in place, gang violence. Um, you know, and then I guess we didn't, we didn't talk about it, but like medical, we talked a little bit about health, though, medical trauma, the health, the chronic stress of having health issues. Um, so school violence. Um, and then other things that, you know, like having humiliating experiences or feeling overlooked or feeling like publicly shamed or, um, it's all these things can just really contribute um, to trauma and, and it can be difficult for us too as providers to be, to be facing this. And, and wading through this um, as well. And so the, the, the purpose of the training is also to make things better for clients, but then also for yourself, being able to kind of sit with this and continue to work, work with this through a trauma-informed system. Um, so yeah, this is a vignette. We can, I'll read it, and then we can kind of talk about um, kind of what's coming up for us as, we're, as I'm reading it. So Samantha is a 29-year-old mother, three children, ranging in age from three months to 10 years old. Recently, people have begun to notice that Samantha has become increasingly irritated and impatient with her children, yelling at them, not paying attention to some of their basic needs. Her case manager connected her with Medi-Cal so her youngest could receive more consistent treatment for his asthma. While at the appointment to reestablish eligibility for his care, Samantha was seen aggressively screaming at a DPSS caseworker, after which she was asked to leave the building. She's often seen crying and returning to her shelter after smoking marijuana, which she claims helps her deal with her children. Um, she's often awake for hours after the shelter is secured for the night. She experiences frequent nightmares when she does sleep. She spent most of her early years in a shelter for foster youth until aging out. Uh, soon after, she met her first child's father, who was the love of her life. Um, at present, she hasn't been receiving help from any of the children's fathers and hasn't been able to maintain stable employment. So this might, might be a familiar case. Um, and so kind of what do you think is going on with her, with the, with the yelling and with the becoming upset? and um, Or what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, it sounds like depression, potentially postpartum depression. She just had a baby, so that That's really good. Yeah. yeah. Really good point. Um, 
Yeah, depression. What what else? Um, Yes, yes, yep. So she might have been experiencing anxiety at the DPSS place. Yeah. Um. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yeah. I know, at least, for, I don't know for you, but for many of my patients, it's, it's impossible to sleep in a shelter. The, the checks and the noise and. And, and I wonder what her earlier experience in the shelter as a bus were like. Mm hmm. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you guys are doing great. I don't. I feel like I, don't, I could just stop the talk right now. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, and this, I think you covered all this. What kind of events could have led? You know, like, yeah, the earlier experiences. Um, I hadn't even thought of the postpartum, so that's a good point. Yes. <laughs> I have an 18-month-old, so I understand this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, three children. I know, alone. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so basically, this, this is the reveal. So she was re removed from her mother at birth due to a positive drug screen. She was the last of four siblings um, removed from her birth, birth mom and raised in foster care. In foster care, she experienced neglect, physical abuse, and then trafficking. As a frequent runaway, she met her oldest son's father, who assisted her financially um, and provided protection for her working. Um, she reports that she had a lot of trust in him. He was killed by a rival while protecting Samantha one night upon exiting the club where she was employed. She has a deep fear of losing her children to a system she feels failed her and a deep mistrust of those in the helping professions. Um, but prides herself on being a fighter and surviving and still thriving. Um, yeah, so it, a lot of things you guys brought up too, the earlier experiences kind of shaping um, and the, and the fear, I think, too, the fear of services and um, that, we, that we encounter. And, that, and then we're the helpers, but also trying, trying to let people trust us when, when systems have, have failed. Um, so this is kind of the iceberg you know, point, is that there's, the behaviors are always just tips of the iceberg. And so there's always more going on underneath. Um, and that we, we may just see the surface, but trying to get, get out what's going on. Um, and that's what we want, and that's kind of the point of a trauma-informed system. So if, if at DPSS they had been able to kind of see that and kind of start maybe offering um, some support there or in the shelter kind of working with her and trying to, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, yeah, the key takeaways from this is so there's a wide range of potentially traumatic experiences that we all are experiencing with our, with our clients. While we might not be able to prevent most trauma, we can minimize it um, by being more just informed about it cultivating resilience, um, and then the behaviors are clues, too. So we always have to be the detective um, with behavior. And you guys are amazing at that, so <laughs> you all did a great job. Um, so what is trauma and resilience care? So really what we, we talked about. So what's going from um, kind of what's wrong with the person to you know, what could be happening under the surface? What strengths can we find? What can we identify as strengths despite kind of all the clues and behaviors that we're, that we're grappling with, um, with a client or in a system. Um, and this is really simple, but it's something to kind of keep in mind as a frame. Um, and have you, have you heard about trauma-informed care definitions? You've probably seen, yeah. So it's really the strengths-based framework. 
um, emphasizes physical, psychological, and emotional safety. But I think the other key point is it's for the providers and also the clients. So we also have to feel safe and um, resilient and being able to kind of work with all, with all this trauma as well. Um, to build a sense of control and empowerment for the, for the clients and for us and, for, and within our systems. Um, so these are the core principles. So I think that one of the first steps is creating a kind and a caring system. Um, and basically, so being kind of mindful of every interaction. And I think a lot of you are, are doing that and then but thinking of how other systems can do this as well. Um, so avoiding re-traumatization, um, doing this trauma screening, education, and then recognizing symptoms and responding, and then like modulating our tones and, and modulating our kind of um, body language in response to somebody who is upset or having um, or being triggered or, or thinking about you know having flashbacks about their childhood. Yeah. So the core principles. I thought we would kind of go through these core principles together of trauma and resilience-informed care. So there's safety and nurturing, trust and stability, collaboration and support, um, empowerment and choice cultural, historical, and social issues, and strengths-based. So the, the first one, um, so safety and, and nurturing. So this is really um, thinking about systems where you feel physically safe. So are you working um, with clients and you're, you, know, you feel safe walking on the sidewalk? Are you, is it lighted enough um, for you and for the client? Um, so it's our environments. Are, are these systems like safe environments? And sometimes it's not. Sometimes we're working in environments that are not safe. But how can we make it, how can your organization make it safer? How can we make it safer? Um, emotional safety. So feeling as if it's um, for, for your clients, for yourself, that, that you're, it's um, interpersonal relationships are safe. There's safe boundaries. You feel supported by your co colleagues. Um, there's appropriate privacy, there's confidentiality, and then there's mutual respect with you and others you're working with, with your clients. These are all safe, nurturing um, systems. Is, um, so part of a trauma-informed system is having trust and stability. So this is um, for relationships. So, begin, so, we, so when we think about a trauma-informed system, we think about relationships like with our colleagues, and then we're, we're also thinking about with our clients, with your bosses, with like senior leadership. So I think that's when I, when I mean system, I mean kind of everyone. Um, so we need to have consistent um, messages, consist, you know, knowing kind of what's, what's consistent in your job, um, boundaries, being able to, to apply. And this can be really hard for all of us, like setting boundaries with clients or with colleagues or um, being asked to do something that you're comfortable doing, you know, um, setting boundaries with yourself. So I think a lot of people are in the helper role and it's, sometimes it's really hard to come out of that role. Um, and then having clear expectations too. Um, about what, what you need to be doing, um, and then for your clients as well, um, and then maintaining curiosity without judgment. That's, that's part of this kind of trust and stability of the system. So, um, not being, so being able to not judge right away or be judged. Um, so how do, what are things you're doing in your work environment to cultivate this? So you know, with your, with your colleagues, with your clients, what are kind of things that, are, that, you're, that you think that you're doing well? So then the collaboration and support piece. So this, this is actually a really important part of a trauma-informed system. So this is like your support in your organization from each other, from, your, from staff, from your leadership. Um, I work in a clinic where it's multidisciplinary. So there's like lawyers, social workers, pharmacists. And so how, how do we support each other in that aspect? Thinking about power dynamics, power differences, um, even between you and your clients. Like, and and that, that might come up between you and people in your system. Um, valuing you know, human beings equally as well um, for everyone. Um, 
honoring diverse experiences, so understanding diverse experiences in the system, um, and then having the shared vision and outcomes. So really, you know, like have, having these shared goals as a system, or, or that you feel like people are sharing your goals, and that um, and that you're not kind of trying to work on an outcome that only you want. Or that, so really just feeling supported by others around you. And same with your client, that you're, you know, that you're sharing their goal. And, and then the last part, or not the last part, but another really important part is this empowerment and choice. So have, part of this trauma-informed system is choice and empowerment because we know that trauma takes away choice. And so many of our clients are dealing with situations where they didn't have a choice or that their, their choice was taken away. Um, and so us providing choices like whenever we can, even if it's just little, like, um, do you want the door open or closed in, in our session? Or do you want to sit in this chair or this chair? Just any kind of way that we can provide um, choice to clients um, is, is healing, um, informing about options, um, and then including in decision making, which I think a lot of nowadays people are doing that, shared decision making with your clients. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's more and more becoming important, and, and it can help um, kind of build these skills. Um, and then the, the last, you know, instilling this hope and optimism that even this, despite everything that's going on, that you know things can get better and you can work towards th things getting better. And then this, the you know really importance of recognizing stereotypes and biases. I think systems are and DMH is doing an amazing job of this. I think systems are trying to do this more. But in your system, um, stereotypes that come up, um, you know, historical trauma, like recognizing how difficult it may be for some people to meet with your services um, because of trauma in the past, like family separation in the past and concern about that in the future, in past generations, um, implicit bias, assumptions, um, and then having a basic cultural awareness understanding. I think really, you know, um, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, we live in a very diverse city, but trying to establish cultural understanding with, the, with your clients, um, even with your organization, um, and thinking about how all these come into play, um, working with trauma. The strengths-based, you know, deficit thinking to asset-based. So, and that's really just kind of incorporating all of this. So starting, so instead of saying like, what's wrong with you? Um, you know, what have you been through? Like, what, what's, what's coming out now? What is, what's coming up for you? Um, you know, recognizing a person's strengths. Um, the fact they're even able to meet with you. For, for us, it's like, Maybe someone's not ready to start medication yet, but they're meeting with us, or they're, they're meeting us halfway, or they called to cancel the appointment, and they're still trying. Um, or the housing piece. You know, I don't want housing, but out, motorhome, or um, really you know, focusing on the person's strengths um, as well. And the future, and, and building skills, building problem-solving skills, building goal-setting skills, um, and seeing, people, seeing how people's strengths before they do, too. Is all, is all part of the strengths-based approach. Um, and so I think the last part, which I feel bad I'm kind of racing through, is the taking care of ourselves part. This should be a whole other hour because it's so, so important. Because um, you are dealing with really difficult situations, you know, with this chronic trauma we talked about, acute trauma, and like your health is also at risk. Um, and I, I hate, I don't want to like scare anyone, um, but it's, it's really, really important too to, to think about the, the impact of this trauma on us. Um, especially those of us working, you know, actually you guys are working with all sorts of situations. So with homelessness, children, families. Um, and so I always thought this was really goofy, but I think it is really important. And I actually feel, um, I want to thank the airline attendants now when they come down the aisle and say this, because like, yes, we should put on our oxygen mask first. Um, 
And, then, and really, empathy is this finite resource. So you can run out. So you guys are all in the helping role. You're here. You have empathy. You care for people. Um, but it, it can run out. And, you, and it's, it's, um, you can't give yourself over and over again without replenishing as well. And I think, um, and I was never taught this really in medical school. I don't know if you guys were ever taught this in your training, but really like the importance of, of our self-care, which I know is a buzzword. Someone brought up the word soul care at a, at a meeting I was at earlier um, this week, and I thought that was great. So not just self-care, but soul care. Like how do you know? Um, recharge, yeah. Um, at work, so you know, the, this, this is all based on research, but setting small goals and intentions at work. Uh, I don't know about you, but I make like a whole list for the day, and then I'm like, oh no, I got to number two by the end of the, the day. So smaller goals, you know, for yourself. Um, practicing breathing throughout the day. We we handed out we have a handout for you on breathing. It's something we do with kids called butterfly breathing, but I think it also really works for adults, especially for me, because sometimes it just helps to kind of trace something in practicing breathing. So that, so I, I have that for you. Taking breaks creating a reward system, you know, if I do this, I can go get a coffee. <laughs> it's okay, it works. And then develop an end of a day work ritual. This was new to me, someone taught this to me. I still haven't done it, like my desk is still really messy. And, and then some of you guys are in the field, so you, you don't have a desk, so it's your bag. But some people really say, you know, like clean your desk or your bag out at the end of the day. And like take out some of the trash that's in there, um, your old coffee cups, which is probably in my bag. Um, and then make a list for the next day, um, and then set these boundaries. So if you have to go home for, to make a doctor's appointment or a class, you know, go. And, um, and then do you guys practice these transition rituals from work to home? This is something I learned. I think in LA it's so important because we spend like half of our lives like going home on the freeway. But um, really, you know, like trans transitioning out of work. And, 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 you know, especially for those of you in the field, it can be hard because you have your phone and um, I have my pager. But, you know, like really like leaving work at work when you go home. And um, some people do deep breaths in the car. Some people say they just put on like a podcast that can just transport them to a different space. So if NPR is like too triggering, then, <laughs> you know, something else. Um, and somebody told me they have a worry box outside of their house. They have an imaginary box. And they just like take off all their worries and like put it in the box and then walk in. Yeah. yeah. So. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because otherwise you're walking home, you're getting inside the house with that. Yeah. Um, and then cultivating support at work. You know, support for colleagues. Ask for feedback. Monitor your workloads. This is all hard. I mean, a lot of this comes from leadership. They really. Thinking, so maybe you can go back to your system and think like, how can you know, leadership be doing this as well, monitoring my caseloads, advocating for self and others. Um, and then this, we ran out of time. I was going to have you do a self-care practice. <laughs> Sorry. But I think it's really, really important. So I think, you know, at the end of each day, you know, even at your work, like sharing three things with each other that you can acknowledge about yourself, you know, or at your team meetings, kind of sharing these things, um, positive things about yourself to others. Because I think a lot of times we aren't doing that or we're not thinking about all the hard work we're doing and um, gratitude for ourselves and, and what you're doing.